Nehemiah chapter 5, and as we announced, we are looking at what to do with people who push your buttons, especially those ones who seem to be able to push all of them. How does God expect us to respond? And is there a way that we can respond that will change how they act with us? And also another topic I've been asked a lot about over the last couple of months is how I can know I'm hearing the voice of God. We've hit this from a few different things, from one of the parables of Jesus and some other areas on Sundays, and I think on Wednesday. But we're going to be also taking a look at that from this standpoint as well. So when you know a person who's a Christian, and they do something that really makes you mad, gets you angry, they may do something against another Christian. They may do something or say something against God. Maybe they do something even against you. This will work for all those situations. Nehemiah was in a very similar place, and we're going to take a look at his response here in this chapter. Just to review, we were looking at the pattern of the enemy. We saw the pattern of the enemy is first off to start off with scorn, that people around you will scorn. This is a, a scorn will build in them. This is more of an internal beginning, such as it was with Judas or the Pharisees and their views of Jesus. This is just getting things going on the inside of people. Mules moves over to ridicule. This is when they're trying to sway public opinion against you. That's the aim. They want to get the public, the people that are around you. They want to sway their opinion so you don't feel comfortable saying the things you have been saying, speaking, acting, whatever it might be. Moves on to accusations, false, twisted, even lies to step up the ridicule. The aim here is to loosen the value and the impact that your work has on other people. We then go into threats if those things haven't tapered you off. Intimidation to get you to quit in case there's not enough public support. Well, I put it in, in case there is not public support for the next step. So they may just stop here at the threats. If they feel like they have public support, they will go to the place of violence. This is their desired result, but they only attempt it if they perceive it won't turn the public against them. Because that's where the power is. It's always in the people. It's in the, it's in the public. It's in the opinions that go on there, and that's why the Pharisees had to change that opinion against Jesus. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren, for there were those who said, We, our sons, and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. Now this is sandwiched here right after we have the uh, situations of four where the people were coming against them to threaten them and try and get them to stop. It seems like this is going on during the same time period. And it does go on during this time, but it really began a whole lot sooner. Because none of these situations that are described can occur in just one month. It takes a lot longer for this to happen. So this is something that has been building. This is something that was going on in the country when Nehemiah got there, but he didn't know about it. He didn't know he was facing this particular problem when they were building the wall. This put additional pressure on them that he was not aware of. He just saw the outward pressure of the oppression that was coming, the threats. But this was also going on. And so now he's speaking about how he became aware of this. He says there was a great outcry of the people. 
against the Jewish brethren. This is the Jewish brethren that are doing it. It is not people from outside. Now, most likely this has been going on for a while, but the work on the wall where they put so much time on the wall and not time into their jobs or the things they were doing to make money, uh, this just put more pressure on that. So it kind of brought it to the surface is at least my guess on, on this anyway, why this is coming out now. He says there was a great outcry of the people. We'll compare this. Just keep that in mind. We'll compare this when we get over to verse 6. But the oriental habitation or habit of, of um, lamenting, it was a shrill cry. Not something that we do over in this country too much, but it was something that they would do over there. And it tells us here that children had been sold into slavery. Some of the some of the things that were going on this right now. The first thing we get into is that there was hunger. There was uh, they're trying to get enough grain to eat. They were trying to get enough food to eat. Can you imagine going through this trying to get enough food to eat and then also taking time off to build the wall? And Nehemiah was not aware that all this was going on. Now their brethren, the Jews. This is the richer Jews. They were the ones who were adopting the practice that he is uh, facing here. That he'll describe as we go on. But here, the bigger families, there's three different groups. And the, uh, the first group here are the ones that are trying to get food. The bigger families, they had more children. And they're the ones who complained more about the difficulty of getting food. They probably felt that more so than the, the others. So this was the first group. This was their complaint. We're not getting enough food. We're not able to get enough food. Verse 3, there were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we may buy grain because of the famine. So some were not just having a hard time finding enough food. They had already mortgaged their lands, their vineyards, their houses and everything just so they could buy grain. And now uh, they're in a financial hole as well as trying to get the food as well. Talking about the famine here, if you remember back when we were in the book of Haggai, chapter 1 and verse 6, 9 through 11, and chapter 2, 16 through 19, spoke of a famine that happened because they were not doing certain things and the rains were not coming and therefore the crops were not coming in. They were not uh, giving the importance to the house of God, to the building of the house of God and some of the other practices they were supposed to be doing. So the rains were not coming. And their work, though they would work on the fields, it was not producing as much. So that could be the famines they were speaking of here. At least one of them. Verse 4, there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our own lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is all the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So for this third group, they're trying to pay the taxes. If you remember... Back in Ezra chapter 4, verse 13, if you want to write that down. One of the accusations that was made against them rebuilding the walls was that they would stop paying tribute to Persia. So apparently, they were feeling that pressure. Maybe they were feeling that pressure. And they mortgaged everything they could just to pay the taxes that they owed for the nation of Persia. So these are the three situations that come in. The first one, we can't find enough food for our large families. The second one, we've mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. So they're just trying to get enough 
money to buy the food. And the third group is we've uh, mortgaged, we've sold our children into slavery just so that we can pay the taxes. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Now this is the typical response, and this is why we're getting into the topic that we have here, is that Nehemiah has come in, he has left a comfy job, a comfortable place to live, he's living in the palace, he's got a relationship with the king of Persia, uh, he's set, he's uh, even making some money, he's doing pretty well financially. He has decided to leave all that behind, for a time anyway, king did want him to come back. We're going to leave that behind. I'm going to make this long, arduous journey over the wilderness to come to a city that's broken down, help them rebuild the walls, get things in order, and then head on back to Persia and continue my job there so that all the work that I do in this city, I'm not going to reap the benefit of. I'm going to be gone. Then he's got to make the trip, of course, all the way on back. And that's if he only made one. It seemed like from the way the king was talking to him, he was expecting him back sometime soon. So he may have gone back and then asked for some more time. I'll be the governor for a while. And then came on back and served as governor for a bit and then went on back after that. But he does serve as governor, we find out, for 12 years. And then he hears that the brethren have been putting the people under this kind of pressure. And he gets mad. Now put yourself in Nehemiah's position. <clears throat> you have given up all this to help these people to find out that the richest ones in the city have been doing this to their brother. That can make you mad. For Nehemiah, this pushed his buttons. Verse 6, And I became very angry. When I heard their outcry and these words. So he heard whatever noise that they're making because of all this that they're going through. And then he heard these words that they were saying, this is what's going on. These are the three situations that we have. Now, Nehemiah, he's not affected by any of these situations. He hasn't mortgaged any of his houses. He doesn't have any houses there. He doesn't have any land in the, in the place. He doesn't have any, as far as we know, he didn't bring any kids over. Uh, he's not starving for food. He's not experiencing any of these things that they're speaking about here. But he becomes very angry because they are going through this. He's not happy with this at all. How is it that I'm doing all this and I'm giving up so much? It seems even he put some of his own personal money into this project. And you guys are doing this to your own brother. Here's a kicker in verse 7. There is some hidden wisdom in this verse. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. Now the wisdom in here might be hidden to you. But for the most part, Christians that are in this same situation... If, if they were Nehemiah, the verse would simply say like this. We would read verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to each of them. We would drop the after serious thought. 
A lot of times, once our buttons are pushed, all serious thought is out the window. We're not contemplating anything. We are rebuking. We are coming right after it. He does not speak out of the emotion he feels at the moment. He gives the matter serious thought. That is a tough thing to do, but it's important. Too often, we open up our mouths when our emotions are involved, and we say things that down the road we regret. He doesn't do that. He holds his tongue. He's mad. He's angry. But he's going away. He's going to give this some serious thought, and then he comes back and he deals with it. So he speaks to or confronts the guilty party, the people that were guilty on this. Not stopping there, he calls for an assembly of the people. He doesn't want to just speak to those affected. He wants to put people pressure on the nobles. He wants the people to be involved in what it is that he's he's saying to them. Now understand this, as we get into this, you'll, you'll see, these are people that have disregarded Scripture. Because what they're doing is against what the Word of God told them to do in the Mosaic Law. They're breaking the law in doing these things. That's one of the reasons Nehemiah gets so upset. He knows the law. He knows they've broken it. Just to get themselves rich. So what he what he wants to do is, I am not going to set you guys up to get you to make me a promise that you won't do this anymore. Oh, no. I don't trust that you guys are going to do what you say you're going to do. A lot of times, no, let me say this first. He's dealing with brethren. These are not heathen. These are Jewish brethren. Probably show up at synagogue. Probably show up at the temple. Probably you're in there all the time and fellowship with the people and repeating the scriptures and doing all the things that everybody else does. He does not expect them to keep whatever word they say. That is a bit of wisdom that is so far buried in here and we need to learn from it. Because sometimes when we're dealing with Christians and we confront them on an issue and they tell us, you know what, you're right, I need to fix that, we go off. Well, I took care of that. No. Nehemiah knows if you guys have not policed yourself regarding the law of God, you will not police yourself regarding the words that come out of your mouth. So he sets it up so that other people can hold them accountable. That's a step that a lot of Christians don't take today. Verse 8. Now I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Now the we here is a little confusing. The we doing the redeeming may be the Jews he came from that are still in Babylon. Or those of his household. I don't know which one it is. It would seem to be one of those two. Either the household of Nehemiah or the Jewish people that were back in Babylon had not made the trip. Apparently they are finding Jewish brethren that are in, that have been sold into slavery and they are redeeming them. They're buying them out of that slavery. They're using their own money, purchasing them on whatever market they have for them there, and then setting them free. This is something they had been done. Nehemiah has not mentioned that since he's come down here, but he mentions it now because these folks, these Jewish brethren, 
are taking their brethren and selling them into some kind of slavery. Whether it's slavery there with the Jewish people or slavery outside. We don't know. He doesn't really give a whole lot of specifics on it. But he's mad that this is going on. It says that they were silenced. But they, they were, they didn't speak up on this thing. Sometimes you can catch people on, on what it is they're doing and they deny it or they rationalize it. These guys don't do that. They just stay silent. So either they're, I don't know if they're trying to hide behind not recognizing that they have done it or if they just say, you know what, we have no defense for this. I'm going to assume the latter. So he's telling them, look, we have used our own money to redeem people out of slavery and you are selling your own brethren into slavery? Are you kidding me? Here we are all working on this project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and you guys are selling their kids as slaves to pay back debt? Verse 9, Then I said, What are you doing? What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations of our enemies? What they're doing is evidence that, to Nehemiah anyway, that they have not the proper fear of God that they should. He says, what you're doing is not good. I'm sure other people may have used stronger wording there. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Can you imagine what the nations are saying? About this nation that God loves, here's the people selling their own brethren in slaves. Here's the people putting them in debt situations to where they uh, can't feed their families anymore. Verse 10. I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. So apparently what's happened up till now is that people have come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, I can't work today on the wall. I have to go out. I have to get some work done because we have no food in the house. What do you mean you have no food? We have, we have no money. We have no food. I just have to go out and try and get enough to get us some money so we can have food. Then I'll come on back and work on the walls. So then Nehemiah, he starts opening up his purse, purse springs, strings and um, he says, look, I'll give you some. Here's some money. He starts loaning out money to the people that were in need. He's using his own money to do this. He's this move. No, no, we got to get this project going. Look, I'll give you some money. You can go out there and get the food that you need. But he says in verse 10, I also with my brethren and my servants in lending them money and grain. So this is either the people who came with him on the trip. Uh, his servants apparently have money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. He's opening up their, their food stores and feeding them. So he says, our example is to lend or to give to them without charge for interest. He's, he's not using them. He's not use, doing usury. There's no interest in this. If he gave them 50 bucks to go out and buy food... If they were going to pay it back, they were going to pay back 50 bucks. There was no interest on it. Verse 11. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So he wants them to give back some of the usury. I'm surprised he didn't ask for all the usury back, but it seems like he only asked for part of it. But the bigger thing is, he says, look, you need to go back and give them back their lands. Just give them their lands back. Give them their vineyards. Give them their olive groves. Give them their houses. No longer are you the owner of it and they're just living there. Give them back to them. Give them the deed. What he is basically doing here is he is calling for a year of jubilee. 
he's telling them, you need to enact the year of Jubilee now and have everything go back to the people. Look at what we're doing. Look at what the Word has said that you're supposed to do. You've gone against the Word. You have not done what you're supposed to do. How is God going to bless our nation when we are not following His Word? Now, this would have been done in the year of Jubilee. No mention is made of the year of Jubilee, so we don't know if one is coming up. As far as we can tell in the history of the Jewish nation, that from the time that Moses received the year of Jubilee and that they were supposed to follow this once they got into the land, they never practiced it even once. The year of Jubilee would be practiced after the seventh year of Sabbath. Sabbath. And they didn't do the land Sabbath. Every seven years, they're supposed to give the land rest. He said, don't harvest it. Just give the land rest. And I'll make sure that on that sixth year that you receive an abundance so that you can get on through the seventh year. So if you think back to how this was done, the first time they were in and they were harvesting and they came to the sixth year, God would have held up His Word and given them an abundance. And they became greedy. Oh, we had such a great year last year. If we sow this year, oh, we're going to be in better shape than what we were before. And that started things off. And so they never celebrated the land Sabbaths. After seven, land Sabbaths was supposed to be the year of Jubilee, which is the 50th year. There are some folks who make a case that the seventh land Sabbath year is the year of Jubilee. I don't see it. I see that it is an actual 50th year. It is a separate year. How the land Sabbaths worked with all that, I don't know. No one had to figure it out because no one ever did it. So he's basically telling them, go and have the, the land Sabbath or the, the year of Jubilee now. Verse 12, So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's amazing to me. I, I, I just, I would like to, I'd like to be there. I'd like to see this happening. I'd like to see people who were this greedy and uh, done this much to even sell their the sons and daughters into slavery. Just say, hey, you know what? That's fine. We'll, get, we'll give it all back. Mm. I, I mean, he wrote it down. This seems to be what happened. We will restore it and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And as far as we can tell, they did. Which is an amazing thing. As far as we, as far as we know, this is the only time anything like Jubilee was honored. Verse 12, the second part. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So, all right, it's go real good. Y'all gave me your word, your promise, but priest, come on over here. Let's make this official. Let's have you guys state this before God. He's not willing to rest on their word. As we said, he disregarded the law as it was. I don't think you're going to do this without some kind of... Uh, uh, power behind it. So in the same way, don't you eat it. If you have people that have been dishonest in your life and then they want to say, you know what, I'm going to do it right now. Don't take them at their word. If you do, you're being foolish. Then I shook, well, you, you need to trust them. You need to give them a chance to, to make it up. Well, they need to make it up first. 
That's the example here. I want to follow the wisdom that Nehemiah had. Nehemiah handled the situation and apparently worked out pretty good. We've had some situations for ourselves that have not worked out so good. So I think we can learn from the man who had it work out pretty well. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. (laughs) We got props on this one. And all the assembly said, Amen. Now all the assembly, this is all the people that were there, not just the nobles. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. So apparently they held it up. They gave the deeds back. They gave the uh, part of the interest that he asked to to get back. They didn't extract any more usury. Verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year, 20th year to the 32nd year, that's 12 years he served as their governor. 12 years, he says, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. Now, this could mean a few different things. One, he didn't eat, he didn't require the land to bring him what the uh, king said they needed to bring for the provisions of the governor. Because the king would have decrees to go out. He's got to take care of his governors in all these areas. So all you people, you got to pay this much to them every month or whatever it is to take care of the governors and all the things that go on. You know, there's all that stuff they got to do and they got to feed them. But he says, no, we haven't done that. We haven't, um, haven't, haven't ate the governor's provisions. This, this could mean we didn't exact it from the people. Or we just used things that we brought with us. Or we uh, provided it for ourselves. Whatever it was. He was entitled to it. He was the governor. But he did not live on the expense of the subjects of the land. That's quite an example. It's kind of like when we have a president who says, I'm not going to take a salad. We've had a few. Not many. Most of them take a salad. A few of them let us know, I'm not taking my salary. I'm putting my salary back in or giving it to different places. Um, I don't even think you need one hand to count all the presidents that we've had that have done that. But there have been a few. Verse 15, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even the servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall. We did not buy any land. All my servants gathered there for the work. So he didn't follow that example. I followed this example. He sent a new one. I'm not taking the money. I'm not taking the expenses. I'm not taking the, the provisions. I'm out there working. Now we only know of two former governors here in the, the section of scripture we've been talking about since they came back. And that was Zerubbabel and Ezra. Those are the only two governors that we know of from the word of God. But apparently... There there were others, or it's likely that there were others. He served for 12 years, and then someone else served after him. While he was there, he didn't put his time into land investments. He put his time into repair of the wall and in getting the city back up and operational. Verse 17, And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers beside those who came to us from the nations around us. 
So that's 150 that he had at his table. He's a, he's a governor. He's a dignitary. He's got to do some entertaining. I, I, I wouldn't be cut out for that lifestyle. I, I don't, I like entertaining some, but I don't like entertaining that much. You imagine having 150 guests over every day? That's a lot of, a lot of entertaining. Now that with, that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me. And once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. So he wasn't going to put anything more on there. But imagine having a household and a table that you need an entire ox, six choice sheep, fowl, all this sort of stuff, just to feed them. That is pretty remarkable. So he's seems to be letting them know this burden was not put on the people. It was either on him personally or he used provisions that were given to him. Verse 19, Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. This is not a prayer to be remembered by the people whom he served for what he did, but to be remembered by God. Most people won't want to be remembered by people. They want people to remember them. I want history to know and that I was here and that I did these things. He didn't care about that. He says, God, I just care that you remember what it is that I've done in my time that is here. Now, he makes similar prayers, and we'll cover them when we get up to chapter 13. There you'll see the similar prayer in verse 14, 22, and 31. So, let's take the wisdom that we get from Nehemiah, and let's apply this here. What should we do when we get angry for things not done against us, for things done against God, or maybe even for things that were done against us. All these, the, the same thing will work no matter what was going on. We put in here, there are three main things you need to do. And I am not telling you that they are easy. Just because there's only three doesn't mean that they're easy. The first one is the hardest. This is the one that most people skip. The first one is right thoughts. Your thinking has to be right. Take time to get your spirit in line with God. When a situation comes on and our buttons have been pushed, our emotions are involved and you are angry. You may as well just admit it. My emotions are involved. I am angry. I may be angry for right reasons. I may be angry for wrong reasons. It makes no difference. If you are angry for the right reasons or angry for wrong reasons and you speak out of your emotions, 99.99% of the time, you are going to answer wrong. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Just don't do it. I almost would say 100% of the time, but maybe there's, maybe there's some kind of time. So first off, take time to get your spirit in line with God. That's what Nehemiah did. He gave it some serious thought. He got with God. He said, God, we need to get this thing. I need to know how I am supposed to deal with this, what I am supposed to say, what I am supposed to speak. Pride makes you think you know it all. As soon as you get angry, pride will rise up on the inside of you and you begin to think you know everything about what everyone did. You know their motives. You know their thoughts. 
you know they're intense. You don't. But pride will rise up on the inside of you and you will think you do. That is pride moving you. You let pride move you, pride is resistant to God, you're not going to hear the voice of God. Humility teaches you how important right words are. Pride teaches you that your words, whatever they are, are good. Humility teaches you, no, they need to be right words. Let scriptures give you perspective. Helps to know where you can go to to find them. But scriptures can give you perspective. I don't know if you all can do this or have done this or not, but the internet is a phenomenal tool. Used to be we had to pull out Nave's topical Bible and then you had to look up the topic and then you had to go and find those scriptures, go find that place in Nave's topical Bible and then read all those scriptures that are there. Now you can pretty much go up on any search engine and just type in scriptures on and put whatever it is. Scriptures on fear. Scriptures on anger. Scriptures on people who did wrong to me. I mean, you can be as specific as you want and it is amazing what you will get that comes up. And then you don't have to do any work at all. They're all right there. And you can just read them over. Let Scriptures give you perspective. After that, get different testimonies or views. Get different ones. Don't, I mean, he's heard it from this source right now. Go out there and find out from some other people what's going on. You're gonna, if you were in Nehemiah's situation, your thought is the noblemen are evil. I need to just shun them. You can't do that. You won't be able to deal with the situation right. You gotta get a couple of the people that you think that are evil, that your first report came in and tells you these folks are evil. You need to listen to them. Did you exact usury on these people? Did you take ownership of their vineyard? Oh, yeah, 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 I did that. How did you, how did you do that? Why did you do that? You begin to talk to them. You've got to find out what their motivation is. You may find out, you know, we tried everything not to. I was trying to help these people to, to not get into this situation, and they just kept doing these. You've got to find out. You've got to get different views. You've got to get different perspectives. Your flesh won't want to do it. Because your flesh says, no, I already know what's going on. And it wants to just decide. And you cannot do that. It's just like, uh, you know, when the news media comes out and they have some situation that they decide to inflame. They get one side. And they pitch it. And they want everybody to be mad at at the way they pitch the side. It may take weeks until you find out what the other side was actually saying or going on and find that out. But by then, the whole public opinion has gone the one direction. I've mentioned it to you before, but I make sure that if I hear, don't hear many news reports anyway, but if I hear a news report and they're all telling me that this side is wrong, I immediately think that side is right. I just go in that direction. Well, they must be the right side. And I I just start with that and then begin to to work back because if I accept their premise, I'm going to see that as evil. I won't pursue their perspective on the thing. You've got to find out all the different perspectives that have gone on because you may find out you didn't have all the information. And the judgment you came was wrong. You don't want to be offering judgment out to other people because in the same way that I have measured out to others, it will be measured out to me. If I want mercy measured out to me, then I need to measure it out to other people. I need to be willing to hear. If you want God to hear your side on the story, you need to make sure you hear somebody else's side on the, 
on the thing that's going on. Be careful what you begin to think. But the first step is right thoughts. If you let your thoughts get away from you, if you begin to contemplate because you heard this report, remember all we're getting here is, is the one side. If you let yourself be poisoned in this way against the other side, you will probably not to come to a right conclusion. He gave it some serious thought. He talked to the people that were involved. They had no defense for what they did. He gave them an opportunity. They had no defense for what they did. And they said, no, we'll fix this. We'll make it right. And he made sure that they would. So the first thing is get the right thoughts. We'll have more to talk about that in just a little bit when we look at some of the examples. I don't want to just give you the principles. I want to show you people in the Word of God who did this because that always helps Always helps me. Second is a right response. So first off, right thoughts. Secondly, right response. This is not the words that you speak yet. Let the Word formulate your response, not your emotions or righteous indignation. This is just getting your response ready. You've all done this. Well, when I see that person, I'm going to say this. See, you are forming a response. When you are forming that response, if you have, first off, come from a place with right thoughts, then you are in a better position to formulate a right response. I'm going to let the Word formulate how I speak, what I say. Not my emotions, not my righteous indignation. Can't let that go on. Even people, you hear them, they speak against God. And you want to just come out and chop their head off. Nope. Pull back. Wait a minute. Find out. Why do you think that God did that? And, it, and you got to talk to them. Find out why. Why do you think that God did that? Don't just jump down on them that they're, they're wrong. Why do you think that? Well, I was listening to this preacher and he was teaching. He was showing. Oh, all right. And do you think there's any possibility that might be wrong? So you got to talk to them about what's going on. What's happening. So, let the word formulate your response, not your emotions or your righteous indignation. Don't think you know what it says. Read it. Do not think, well, I know what the Word of God says on that. Nope, get out there and read it. I'll tell you what, I try and guard so much about this attitude. We can so easily fall into the thing if I hear somebody teach on this topic. Oh, I already heard that. I don't need to hear that again. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do, because I haven't gotten it all from there yet. Whatever the story is in the Bible, I probably need to hear it again because I haven't gotten it all. There's still more that's, that's in there that I can get. Don't think you know it all. Get out there and read it. Read the Scripture. Let the Scripture formulate the response in you. Don't think the Scripture. Read it. Sometimes it's even better if you read it out loud. Let God speak to you as you do it. As you're reading that scripture, you let the Lord speak to you. Let the Holy Spirit say things to you. Flesh-inspired speech can cause great damage. Boy, it can hurt. Flesh-inspired speech can cause great damage. And it's hard to undo that damage. Spirit-inspired words can bring great healing. Here's the third one. Right confrontation. This is where you are actually doing what Nehemiah did. First off, be bold. You need to say the things that God gave you to say. 
I can think of several times that God told me, you need to say this in this situation. Oh, I'll tell you what, I did not want to. There was a couple of times I just said, well, if I don't say what he told me, how am I going to feel afterwards? And if I do say what he told me, how am I going to feel afterwards? And I decided I would feel better if I said what he told me to say. Even though I didn't necessarily like either either side on that. But be bold. Second, be loving. Don't just be loving what you think is loving. You got to first off be bold. I got to say the things that God told me to say. Being loving is not withholding what God has said. That's not being loving. I got to be bold. And then I got to be loving. Have compassion for both sides. If you see one side as evil only, your compassion will be missing or hidden. You've got to have compassion for both sides. There's a few times in the Word of God we saw that Jesus had compassion for some of the religious rulers. You can have compassion even for people you think that are part of an evil group. Don't expect people who have missed God's will so much to police themselves or hold themselves to their word. Because they may do it for a day or two, but that's about it. Don't expect it. You've got to set things up that you can help keep them accountable. Someone can help keep them accountable. All right, let's take a look at some examples on this. Because this is where we really can get to see it. First example I could pull out of the word on this would be Abel. We think so much of Cain and the things that he thought about Abel's sacrifice. But don't you know that he probably vocalized that a few times? He probably sat down at some of the meals and said some things about it. Abel heard some of the words of Cain that they weren't very favorable. They weren't favorable towards God. They weren't favorable towards him. He may have had some confrontations. He may have some, done some things. But he had to formulate. He had to keep his thoughts right. And as far as we can tell, he did. He had to keep his response right. As far as we can tell, he did. Moses. Now there's one we got a lot more detail on. People came after him. They spoke against God. They spoke against him. They spoke against the people that were helping him. He was always, it seemed, defending somebody. But he was bold. He spoke what God told him to speak. But he loved the people that constantly spoke against him. It was amazing. He loved God and he loved the people. He loved them both. He was one of our greatest examples on this. Samuel, in 1 Samuel 16, he saw the people's rejection of God. Well, that's not chapter 16 for that, but Samuel saw when they asked for a king that they rejected God. He was, he was sad for God. But he let his thoughts be formulated by God. And God comforted him. He said, no, don't you, don't you fret about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But he wanted to defend God. He also was sad to see that Saul was rejected. And in chapter 16, he kept praying for him. Even though Saul was not very kind to Samuel, he still was praying for him. And in Samuel, we can see someone who had right thoughts, formed a right response, and gave right confrontation. 
David, we see this towards Saul and the people who would turn him over to Saul. How many times did David come to the rescue of a city and God said, they'll turn you over to Saul. You gave uh, you rest of your life to help them, but they'll, they'll turn you over to Saul. He gave his life in the service for Saul in the army and Saul turned around and wanted to kill him. David is a great example of someone who had right thoughts, right responses, and right confrontation. Jesus, in his life and at the cross, surely we can see those same patterns with him. Peter and John, in the book of Acts, when they were brought before the the religious leaders, they didn't speak out of their anger for what was done to themselves. They let God formulate their responses. They let God formulate their thoughts. And they were bold in their confrontation. Paul and his attitudes towards himself, God, and other Christians. We see the same thing. He had to have an attitude towards himself to forgive himself for the things that he, that he had done. And he did. He had people that came against him because of him preaching the message of, of God. Persecuted him, persecuted people that he liked, came after them, were beating them. Paul wanted to go into the midst of them when they were doing this and help them. He's one who, who saw that. Here's the wrong way to do it. My thoughts become caught up with the wrong done, slowly at first, but more, but the more I yield to them, the more they dominate me. This is where Christians go wrong so, so much in this one. Their thoughts get caught up with the wrong done. Every time you talk to them, they're talking about that wrong that was done. Well, 15 years ago, I remember, they're caught up with it. It's slow at first, but it, it gets gains speed. It's like a snowball going down the side of a mountain. It'll begin to dominate them, and it can dominate you. Even if it's the thought of how God had been wronged, it is always a bad direction if the thoughts dominate you. Don't think about the people and how they're wronging God and let it dominate you because it will take you down a wrong direction. See, the devil doesn't care what thoughts dominate you as long as they are not the thoughts that God wants you to have. And if he can get you so upset about what has been done against God and those thoughts dominate you, he can stir up the wrong feelings and the wrong responses so easily. I imagine the motivations and the intent eventually they become facts in my mind. I first start out imagining them. Have you ever done that with people? Why do you think they did that? Well, they might have been doing this and pretty soon it goes from it might have been. That's what they did. I know that's what they did. And no one can tell you anything different because the imaginations of our heart have become facts. I see the harmful words I speak as nowhere near as damaging as the wrong done. Therefore, whatever I say is justified. Sound familiar? When I get into this, this hinders me from hearing the voice of God because the voice of God gets smaller and smaller and smaller as these thoughts dominate me, as these thoughts take over. So much so that I can begin to think, it doesn't matter what I say because whatever I say is going to be right because of how wrong they were. I may find scriptures or examples that make me feel good about what I'm doing. 
No, don't do that. I don't seek after different testimonies or viewpoints. Don't need to. The one I have is right. The one I have is perfect. Because pride comes in. Pride knows everything. Humility wants to learn. If I can put these negative thoughts out of my mind and they distract me in my worship, or if I'm sorry, if I can't put these negative thoughts out of my mind, I can't do it. I can't drive them out. They'll distract you. They'll distract your worship, prayer, study of God's Word, interaction with others. You will find out that you can't even sit in church and worship God without those thoughts coming in. You can't even have prayer time without your prayer time being drifting over and praying about these situations. can't even study God's Word because every time you study God's Word, you see where you're right and they are wrong. Every remembrance of them and the situation, it stirs anger on the inside of me. Bitterness. Ill will. All these things will be built up inside of me towards the guilty. If it's not God stirring you up to pray or to speak to them, it'll be your flesh or darkness for the purpose of chasing out the voice of God. He wants to chase out that voice of God. He wants you to only hear the voice of your flesh, the voice of darkness. Because you no longer think that that voice is not the voice of God. Now I can only see the speck in their eye. I can't see anything in myself. When I follow this way, my feelings become my voice of direction. Though I still may think or say it's of the voice of the Spirit. It's not. It's my voice and my feelings. And they have so dominated me that I can't even tell the difference between them and the voice of God. Here's some examples. Cain was one of those examples. I think he's an easy one to see. He felt like God should accept this. This should be good enough for God. God should like what it is that I am bringing him. King Saul against David. For God, He was mad against God for picking David. He was mad against the people who supported David. And every evil thing he imagined against those was justified. King Jeroboam, he was mad at God for not being able to support his promise. God hadn't not supported his promise. He just imagined that God couldn't support his promise. But pretty soon that imagination became fact in his head. He was sure that others would reject him, even though no one had. He imagined that they would. And he was sure that they would. But here's a big one. Here's one I think you can get a real good picture from. So I saved it for last. It comes from the book of Esther. The book of Esther, we have two people who followed down a wrong path. Not everybody sees that they both followed down a wrong path, but they did. Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai, when he saw Haman, he wouldn't give him any acknowledgement. He wouldn't uh, not bow down and worship. It was just bow down and, and it, that's how they gave reference to the people in these positions. He wouldn't do it. Other people were, but he wouldn't do it. People around him came to him and said, hey, you need to do this. Nope, I'm not bowing down to that guy. He probably had some religious reason for why he didn't do it. But because he held on to that and would not let it go, he opened the door for the enemy to nearly wipe out the Jewish nation in that country. 
nearly wipe it out because of what he did. And he wouldn't, he would not turn from it. Haman was doing the same thing. And both of these guys had imaginations of the other person. And they both just kept going down a wrong direction. Now God didn't intervene on this. He intervened because of his people. He did not intervene because Mordecai was so good. Because he was not. But he almost opened the door up for the enemy to do something. All because he had something that he thought was a principle he needed to stand for. Let me give you some scriptures here. I wrote them in your outline. I'm just going to read them here for you. I am reading all these from the New Century Version. Proverbs 12, 16 through 18. Fools quickly show that they are upset. <laughs> right there. That's hard to get past. Fools quickly show that they are upset. Have you ever been upset in a, in a discussion or something that comes up and you quickly go to a place where you are visibly upset? Yeah, you're a fool. That's from the Word of God. Fools quickly show that they are upset, but the wise ignore insults. Ignore them. An honest witness tells the truth, but a dishonest witness tells lies. Careless words stab like a sword. But wise words bring healing. Guess what God would have you do? He would have you bring healing into your situations. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine, Patient people have great understanding. But people with quick tempers show their foolishness. Proverbs nineteen twenty two. Enthusiasm without knowledge is not good. If you act too quickly, you might make a mistake. Proverbs twenty one five The plans of hard working people earn a profit, but those who act too quickly become poor. Proverbs twenty nine twenty Do you see people who speak too quickly? There is more hope for a foolish person than for them. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Think before you speak and be careful about what you say to God. God is in heaven and you are on the earth. So say only a few words to God. Be careful about what you say to God. <laughs> That's sometimes some, some good wisdom right there. Ecclesiastes 7.9 Don't become angry quickly because getting angry is foolish. Psalm 116, 10 through 11. I believed, so I said, I am completely ruined. In my distress, I said, all people are liars. Don't speak quickly. Don't say, all people are not liars. But there are some things we'll say when we are distressed. And it won't help our situation. Flesh words cause strife, fear, dissension, anxiety, even pent-up feelings. Flesh words can cause me to give up what, what won't help or take what I don't need. Flesh words can cause me to give what won't help or take what I don't need. You speak some flesh words, you're going to find out if you were the, if you were the one on the right and you spoke some flesh words, you may find yourself giving into a situation you don't want to be given into. Helping. I know I shouldn't be giving them any money. But I said that. I guess I have to. Don't do it. Keep your mouth shut. 
wait. There is give and take, but it doesn't amount to a positive result. A resolution may come, but a price to be paid in the future. Just because there is give and take, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a positive result because there are some things that you should not give. And there are also some things you should not take. Just because you come to a resolution doesn't mean it's a good thing. Because some people get in a situation like this with others and they reach a resolution, but the price is going to be paid in the future. Spirit words may cut when infection needs to be removed, but healing then can come. You speak words from the Spirit, and sometimes they will cut out an infection. Look at Jesus. How many times did Jesus say some things and you think, Ow! Oh, oh, I know that hurt them. Yes, he's trying to cut out an infection. The words that the Spirit of God may give you may dig out more darkness, but this lets the light get to where it needs. Sometimes you may open your mouth, the Spirit of God put some words in it, and what came out of the other person was more darkness. Oh, I guess that didn't work. No, that darkness needed to come out. That thing that was in them needed to be spoken out. Now we can deal with it. Now the light can come in on that. They don't always bring harmony. Spirit words will not always bring harmony. But harmony with people is not always achievable without mortgaging the future. I'm reading this because this is stuff I was getting when I was praying about how to run this thing down. I didn't want to say it wrong. Spirit words will not always bring harmony. They won't. Look at Jesus. Look at Paul. Look at Peter. They did not always have words that brought harmony. But harmony with people is not always achievable without mortgaging the future. And God is not calling you to mortgage the future. Not everyone will receive the words of the, that the Spirit speaks. Our job, and we'll get this down, our job is not to make sure people receive them. Only that we utter them correctly. I got to make sure that I hear the words the Spirit wants to speak and that I speak those words, not words that were fanned to a flame by my emotions. Understand, when you speak the words of the Spirit, it may not always bring harmony. How many times did the words that Jesus speak not bring harmony? Spirit words, like faith, are for the now. I always think of Fred Price on this. Faith is now. Spirit words like faith are for the now, the present. God is interested in changing your present to get you ready for what's in your future. Flesh words may ignore the present or even deal with one that isn't real. Flesh words may often deal with a present that's not even real. But spirit words won't do that. All right, I think I left this one in your outline for you. Flesh words are intended to have my opinion heard. That's what flesh words are for. You have fanned your opinion to a place that you think it is so elevated. Everyone needs to hear my opinion on this because my opinion is God's opinion. My opinion is right. 
flesh words are intended to have my opinion heard. Spirit words are intended to have God's view understood. Big difference. Spirit words are intended to have God's view understood. So how can I know the voice of God better? It starts with little things. Like what words I speak when my buttons are pushed. Do my words add to the hostility of the situation or do they get to the heart of the issue? When I see the results from listening to God to speak before I do, my confidence in having ears that hear grows. Instead of just thinking, I have a mind to figure things out. So often we we see ourselves, well, I got I can figure this out. It's not your not your place. If you want to know the voice of God better, and stop listening to the voice of your flesh every time you get upset. Stop giving voice to your opinion because your opinion needs to be heard. All you're doing is fanning the flame and keeping the other voices loud and the voice of God soft. Knowing the voice of God is being able to be in a situation and people have said things and it stirs you up to be angry in your flesh. But you say, that's my flesh. I'm not speaking for my flesh. And unless God gives me something to speak, I will remain silent. And not silent in such a way that people look at you and say, well, boy, they're holding something back. That's not, that's no better. Don't be doing that. If God gives you something to say, then you speak it. If he doesn't, then just have the opinion, I have nothing to say. I really have nothing valuable to put in on this conversation. But if God gives you something to speak, then you can do it. This is one of the easiest ways to learn the voice of God it's in these everyday situations. This is how we learn. People ask me all the time. I always tell them the same thing. You learn the voice of God in the little things so that when the big things come along, you have confidence to know you heard them. You're not going to just hear them in the big things. This is one of those little things. Arguments come up. And when they come up, it's going to stir your flesh. You're going to have an opinion. But you do like Nehemiah did and you give it serious thought. It doesn't mean you have to go someplace different. It may mean you have to go someplace different. It may mean it may take a couple of days. It may mean you just sit there at the table and be quiet. And you seek after God. You get that emotion, that flesh voice quieted down. God may have something for you to say. And you may hear it and you say, that's the issue you want me to speak to? Well, I was more upset over this one over here. Speak to this. You'd be amazed what happens when you follow the voice of God, but don't think that just because you follow the voice of God that everything works out or that that's the sign. Because it never was for Jesus. It surely was not for Paul. And you can list other people in that as well. Not everything that Moses did brought harmony with the children of Israel. But what he did was right. Father, we thank you that we can learn your voice. 
We know so well the voice of our flesh, the voice of our emotions, the voice of anger, the voice of injustice, the voice of our opinion. So often these things influence us. But Jesus gave us the example. I only speak what I hear my father say. I think he was trying to get us to understand that's the direction that we are to go. Speak the words that our Father says, especially when we are in those situations that we know it's volatile. People are upset. You may have something that you want to say, but it may not even be on the topic that's at hand. But if we listen to your voice, take that inspiration, not only can we help the situation that we're in, but we ourselves will learn more of the voice of God. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.